This is Anthony and Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. Gerhard Schwantner is an excellent friend of mine. He's the publisher of Selling Power magazine, which still has a tremendous distribution. And he's also the producer of the Sales 2.0 conference, now Sales 3.0 conference, because Gerhard intuits that there's been a change in sales that needs to be discussed in another way, and that is Sales 3.0. And that is the subject of our conversation today. We talk about artificial intelligence, where sales has been, where sales is going, and what you should do about it. In the arena with my friend Gerhard Schwantner. Gerhard Schwantner, how are you, my friend? I am doing terrific, Anthony. We're here today to talk about Sales 3.0, and we're going to go sort of wide and deep here on this topic because you changed the name of the Sales 2.0 conference to the Sales 3.0 conference. What changed? Well, I think we are about to enter the most massive, biggest ever change that anybody has experienced in sales. We went from 1.0 to 2.0 to 3.0. 1.0 was all about the shiny shoes, salespeople traveling, and uh, we're using maps instead of uh, GPS. People had Rolodexes. Nobody had a cell phone. They had IBM Selectric typewriters in the office that uh, typed up proposals and sent out letters. And there were signature maps where CEOs were signing letters that were brought in the map, in a bundle to the CEO, and they signed like 30 letters by the end of the day. And that was the time where relationship selling was everything. And then 2.0 came along, and we had ACT, and we had Goldmine, and we had uh, Telemagic, and sales information moved from the Rolodex onto the internet to the first to the computer and then later to the internet so everything changed because technology created a better process for managing sales functions and the sales functions got subdivided so you had shiny shoes outside and you had inside sales you had telemarketing and then that divided inside sales into business development reps and account development reps and account managers, and 2.0 was all about doing everything online. And I think the pioneer was Mark Benioff with uh, CIM, with uh, Salesforce.com, where he said we we move from on-premise to online and develop a SaaS-based model and move everything into the cloud. And then hundreds and hundreds of applications followed on Salesforce. And then uh, Microsoft came in and SAP came in and all the the CIM players went online. And the salespeople needed to shift. They needed to learn technology. And then companies 
needed to align people, process, and technology. And on a personal level, on a professional level, people discovered that you need to have the right mindset, the right skill set, and the right tool set. And now we are getting into a totally different dimension. And a lot of people don't even understand what is coming. And what is what we see from our perspective when we talk to leaders from IBM or from with Watson, when we talk to people at Microsoft, at SAP and Salesforce.com, that there is machine learning, there's cognitive computing, there's artificial intelligence, there's virtual reality. There's so much technology coming that is going to change everything because it's no longer the salesperson being in control or the sales manager being in control. It's actually the software being in control and telling people what is the best course of action. There's so much data out there that has been created and there's an avalanche of data and the data is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So we delegate the learning from the data to the machine and then the machine tells us what to do. And how far away from that do you think we are as a real practical application that will help sales organizations reach their goals? Well, that's an excellent question. And what uh, my answer to that is 10 years ago, nobody had an iPhone. It didn't exist. So we don't know what we don't know, but we can make a great speculation and say that in the next 10 years, the iPhone equivalent is going to multiply and there's going to be probably 10 different core technologies that change the face of the earth, that change humanity, that change how we transact, that change how we live. So do you believe that your AI is going to communicate with my AI and my AI is going to negotiate with your AI and Uh, that the entire process will be outsourced and have no human involvement except for the programmers? Right. Gartner Group predicted that by 2020, 80% of interactions between businesses are going to be transacted by machines. And that people, you know, the, the joke is that the people are going to watch the machines do the work. And there's a lot of spe- speculation that robotics for every robot uh, that is taken over in a, in a factory there are a number of jobs lost and that within the next 10 years, over a million jobs going to get lost to robotics. What about, I mean, so I I disagree with that thesis. I I also think that for every robot, there's going to be additional jobs created. They won't be jobs that look like the jobs that we have now, but there will be jobs that come around because of that change, I think. But let me ask you this. So Mercedes-Benz just a few months ago came out and said that they have made a decision on the AI inside their driverless cars. And in that decision, they said, no matter what the circumstances are, the car will make a decision to preserve the life of the people inside the compartment inside the car. So whether there are 12 five-year-old school children crossing at a bus stop, if it means saving the life of the 87-year-old woman driving the car, the 12 children die. And basically what Mercedes said is, we're not talking about it. We're not debating it. It's not a question. In every single circumstance, the car will make the decision to protect the life of the people inside the compartment, which gives us another question, Gerhard. So if I'm the passenger in your car and it's your car, is the AI programmed to drive into a tree on the side of the car where I'm sitting because the passenger's life is worth less than the life of the person that's driving, 
Or will it determine that based on our age or some other factors, which one of us has the greatest likelihood of living? So you're bringing up a a new question, and Google has addressed that already a number of years ago when they talk about DeepMind. They have created a board of ethics to prioritize and grapple with those issues. It's the same thing with the the beginning of life and the the end of life conversation. The, The line is not definite. There's a blurred line. And essentially what we're dealing with is the anxiety that we all have about the unknown. How is life going to continue and in what fashion and how do we need to adapt? And in the past, machines and software has served us to express ourselves fully and where we protected our freedoms. And now we are at a crossroads where we know that computers are accelerating everything, but also they help accelerate the shady side of humanity. There's a lot of crooked business out there. There are a lot of scams from Nigeria. There's a lot of tax fraud. And there's a lot of, a lot of espionage going on. And there is a lot of fake news out there because there's so much knowledge and it's very hard to find out what is real and what is not real. So there's a lot of uncertainty about the world of 3.0 and so we need to be prepared to deal with it. Let me take that a step further. So there's there's different kinds of intelligences that human beings have. And one of them would be a cognitive ability, which computers are exceptionally good at some of the cognitive things that human beings can do, especially when it comes to remembering things and calculation. So that's one thing. Then there's an emotional intelligence, which means uh, empathy and understanding what another person feels. So there's this very, very human thing that we have. There's also what Jeb Blunt and I will argue over which one of us coined the term, but he, he's got his in print first, so I guess he wins. There's TQ. There's a technological quotient. So there's how well can you use the technologies that exist, and I think that's becoming a bigger divide. And then there's also a moral intelligence. And so the challenge that we have is that we have people who might have a very high cognitive intelligence. They might have a very high emotional intelligence a very high technological intelligence, and yet an extraordinarily low moral intelligence. So is your AI that's communicating with me as your prospective customer going to maximize the value for me, or is it going to maximize the profitability for you? And who gets to program that AI so that we're certain that the deal that's being struck is a deal that we want our AI to agree to? I think what we need to do is to recognize that the EQ needs to rise to a level because cognitive intelligence is way ahead of the game and the emotional intelligence is way below the standards where we should be. We have not quantified emotions. We have not codified the emotions. We have not codified relationships clearly enough to understand there are emotional knee-jerk reactions all over the place and people are very scared. And we need to address that as a society. We need to address that as a company. And we need to have leaders in companies that have great emotional intelligence, that have the right mindset, that they understand the leadership qualities of somebody who has empathy for people, the leadership qualities of somebody who wants to contribute. Then we need to codify the belief system that governs people and companies. And we need to dig a little bit deeper and find out what is the meaning that we assign to what we are doing. 
Let me walk you through another view of the 3.0. So I think we are at 3.0 and I think we've been at 3.0 for a while. 1.0 basically was 50 to 100,000 years ago. You're prospecting, you're telling a story, you're asking for the business. You're probably negotiating inside some sort of a bazaar or a market or something like that. And basically, probably what you needed to do was overcome objections and probably needed high charm and rapport, which is your shiny shoes, but it might have been shiny sandals at the time this started, right? So the tools available to us for communicating with customers then would have been face-to-face meetings, word of mouth, and probably markets. And, right. and that was probably it. And then 2.0, I think when you get into the industrial age and you've got people like GM coming out and competing with Ford and deciding that they could differentiate their offering by one, offering things like colors, and then two, offering things like different models the negotiations change because there's more at stake over time because more value is being created or less. And I think then we learn to, to ask questions. We learn to contrast our, our, our offering from our competitors. We learned how to negotiate. And the tools for us through that conversation were face-to-face, word-of-mouth markets. But then because we had the industrial revolution, we also had newspapers, radios, and televisions. And so that was sort of the, the toolkit that we had and we had the telephone. And the telephone was a big part of, of what we did in sales. But now, when you think about wh- what salespeople do, we, we first help people address the question of why should I change? We help them build consensus inside their companies and we actually lead change. So the primary skills are compelling change, advising other businesses, building consensus, leading teams. And we still have face-to-face we still have word of mouth. We still have markets. We still have newspapers, even if they're on the iPad now for me anyway. We still have radios. We still have television. We now have the internet. And we also now have smartphones. And we have websites. And we have content marketing. And we have social channels. And we have apps. So, so far, in no point of, in history have we ever eliminated any of the tools that we've used to engage in the sales conversation, we've only added tools to our toolkit. There's never been anything taken away. Right. There's only been additions. So now at three point though, we're going to have the additional tool of having some sort of artificial intelligence to at least give us some understanding of where we are in the sales process and maybe additional choices available to us. And I say this, now I'm not a Luddite. I think when Musk puts out the first cerebral implant, I have a giant space in my brain where I could install something like that right now because I lost a piece of brain. So I've got to, I'm the first one in. I can't wait till you ask me something and to Google it, I just sort of look up and to the right and then I come back with your answer. That's going to be outstanding. But I think that we are at this stage where we're going to have to determine what role artificial intelligence is going to play in the sales conversation and what is that tool going to look like for us? What kind of insight is it going to give us? Because right now what I see is mostly it's just counting. And so people, they reach out to me and say, we've got a new software. We can tell you if your deal's going to close. And I say, so you have a context engine that can look and see the communication between me and the client. It can also see the communication internally between their emails and determine where they are psychologically, because psychology is still more important than technology. And I recognize that that's that's going to change. There's a shift happening where the technology may equal psychology, but so far it's not there. It's just counting. What is that AI toolkit going to look like for us? 
Well, I think you you've given us a lot of answers. You've listed a lot of tools, and I totally agree that there's a proliferation of channels. The way we communicate, what we need is not more answers. What we need is better questions. I go back to Werner Heisenberg, who said that nature does not reveal its secrets; it only responds to our method of questioning. So the big question we need to ask is: What experience do we want for our lives? What experience do we want for the people who work for us? What experience do we want for our customers? And then we can set standards and find out what is the best way to create the best customer experience at the fastest speed and the lowest cost. Maybe, unless I'm moving up in the hourglass and I'm going to a super relational, high value, high caring, high trust. At what point? Do people start to say, I prefer to work with a human being than be transacted technologically? Well, it, it goes back to England. When you walk around London, you still have tailors that make suits by hand, and you can have a bespoke suit for eight or twelve thousand dollars and and feel like a million. And you can go to Kmart and get a, a similar looking suit for eighty five bucks. You're not going to be able to do that for very much longer, I don't think. Yeah, I'm not sure that they're going to make it. I saw the Sears made some sort of announcement in the last couple of weeks that they're going to struggle to make it. So you see this as being an additional tool. Do you see other tools going away? I'm curious because I think there's an enormous trend of sales organizations that look at their sales force as a cost. And they look at them as unnecessary evil that they wish they could get rid of. And the idea of having an army of automated intelligence, artificial intelligence, in some way serving customers so they wouldn't have to deal with uh, salespeople would be a dream for a lot of people. Right. I think the question is not about what tools go away because every single tool that we use today is going to be obsolete in a few years. Think about the cameras that you used five years ago. You use more cameras today than ever before. And all those cameras have more megapixels than before. And now you're in 4K. And three or four years from now, every tool that you have is going to be obsolete. It's gone. So, And no tool has an expiration stamp. We need to make the decision at what point to replace those tools. And we need intelligence to coordinate that because we need to keep track of the accelerating obsolescence. Look at Jigsaw.com. It's a typical example. Uh, They're aggregated data, inviting people to share data with each other. And then the company was sold to Salesforce.com for, I think, about $160 million. Now, Data.com has faced a lot of competition from many, many companies, and data is the easiest thing to obtain now in the market. And my prediction is that uh, data.com is going to be obsolete in a year or two. It's going to disappear. What about face-to-face visits, word of mouth, and people going to markets? Well, people get more addicted to the changes in the brain that they have when they deal face-to-face with some, somebody that they like. They want to have that pleasant, warm, fuzzy feeling in dealing with somebody. And that's why great high-end retail stores, they're always going to survive because they orchestrate great experiences and they know how to care for the customer. You know, go into any Ritz-Carlton, go to any Four Seasons Hotel, and you 
become the recipient of an experience. It's almost walking into a Disney world. It's all orchestrated. And as salespeople, we need to, or sales leaders, we need to understand that everything is going to move towards that exclusive experience where you're valued. And that experience is never going to go away. Last time I was in San Francisco for 2.0, I think we stayed at the Four Seasons. Right. I, th- I think it's where we were. And on the way there, I lost a button on my jacket. And we got to the Four Seasons. I got there late that night. It must have been 10 o'clock at night. And I said, listen, I need this jacket tomorrow. When I got to the desk, I said, is there any way somebody could sew this button back on for me? And they said, when do you need it by? What's the latest we can get it to you? And I said, it'd be great if I could have it at like 8.30 in the morning or something like that. I got to my room. I opened my suitcase. I hung up my clothes and I went into the bathroom to brush my teeth. And there was somebody standing at the door with the jacket with the button already sewed in. And it kind of freaked me out that there was somebody at my door, but it was that fast. And that's the level of care. That's a different model. So why are we doing this interview over Zoom? Because it's easier than the, for me to fly to Ohio and come to your house. So it's easier. We do more in less time. And why is it important that we have video going, even though this is an audio recording? Because we can see the body language. We can see the response. I can see you nod your head when you agree <laughs> with something. And I see you shaking your head when you disagree. So those signals that are picked up through video are very valuable in a conversation And it's why Dr. Albert Moravian divided that body language into three parts, that feelings and attitudes are communicated only 7% with words, 38% with tone of voice, and 55% non-verbally. So if you have that verbal clue, then you have a better, richer communication. I'd be good at poker. (laughs) Tell me about the 3.0 coming up in San Francisco. I know you've got Jeb there. Yeah, we have Jeb Blount there with a lot of amazing speakers. One of the speakers that I really look forward to is Bob Carr. He is an extraordinary human being. He has created Heartland Payment Systems from nothing, creating a public company, selling the company last year in April for $4.2 billion. And he's back in the game. He's creating another company. And it will be very interesting to listen to his story. Jeffrey Hazlett is going to do a keynote, and he's the, the founder of the C-Suite Network, and he's the former CMO of Kodak, very dynamic individual. He teaches us on how to sell to the C-level. And I'm also excited about, let me go zoom back to, because I, I need to talk more about the women that are participating. I'm going to have a conversation in about a half an hour with uh, Jill Rowley. She's that uh, social media rock star, and she has developed her own platform, and she's an extraordinary speaker. Alice Hyman is going to do the moderating. We also have uh, Antarctic Mike, who is somebody for sports fans, because he has overcome really great challenges that he has set for himself. He decided to run a marathon in Antarctica, and they also had a 100-mile, no, a 100-kilometer race in Antarctica. And there were only nine people competing. <laughs> and he finished it running 100 kilometers in Antarctica in sub-zero temperatures. is amazing. But the lesson for salespeople is you couldn't do this if you're not ultra-prepared. And uh, a lot of salespeople forget how important training is 
for success and reaching your goals. And Mike has demonstrated that uh, he lives in San Diego and he made a deal with somebody to run, to put a treadmill in a freezer. So he was working out constantly and increased his endurance and he achieved his dream. So he's going to be at sales 3.0. And I'm sorry I can't be there, but thank you for being here with us as always. It's good to see you, my friend. It's good to see you, Anthony. Thank you for your time. That was my friend Gerhard Schwantner, and you can find him at sales3.conf.com. Sales3.conf, you will find that in the show notes. I'm Anthony Anarino. You can find me at thesalesblog.com, where I write and publish every day. And you can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino, where I produce a video blog every day, usually with some insight about sales, leadership, management, or success. If this podcast was good for you and you liked it and you want to help us share it, please go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. That helps spread the word. And I appreciate your help. appreciate you being here. And I will see you next time in the arena. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.